Hey guys, Pastor Jürgen here. We're so excited you're tuning into one of our amazing messages. What you're about to hear is going to be fresh, it's going to be real, and it's going to be powerful. It's going to help you to grow stronger in your walk with God. It's going to put faith on the inside of you. It's going to cause you to be able to walk in greater dimensions of blessing and enlargement so that you can be a blessing to other people. Well, lean in, enjoy the Word. God bless you. It's actually really cool for me to be here because this is not too far from my home neighborhood. I grew up about 10 miles from here in South Park. Anybody? I went to McKinley Elementary. People, if you're, if you're native to San Diego and you're getting to know somebody, any native San Diegans in here? Love it. See, this is, that's rare. One of the first things you do is you ask, oh, where'd you grow up? And you tell people, I, I, I want people to know I grew up south of the eight before it was cool. If you go down to like South Park, Hillcrest, that whole area, it is really hipster now. It's very trendy. No, I grew up in South Park where it was bookstores and dive bars. That was it across the board. And so this feels like coming home. I like this. I appreciate this. One of the beauties of that is it doesn't matter where you go in San Diego, whether uh, you're in a more affluent community, lower affluence, whatever the ethnic, everybody struggles with the same thing. One of my favorite things one of my favorite things to see when people come in, um, you can tell that they don't know how to name the problem when they say, we're here to work on communication. We know that that isn't working. We don't know why it isn't working, but we know that we don't know how to talk to each other. So if you guys were like, pull out your phones, don't do it. But if you were to pull out your phones and you were to search up like, why do people get divorced? Why do divorce, why do they happen? Why do marriages end? They're gonna tell the top three reasons that marriage ends is money, sex, and communication. And what I want you guys to understand is that money and sex are both just forms of communication. There's one reason, there's one reason marriages end, is because our words are really powerful. They have the power to bring life or the power to burn a relationship to the ground. There's this visceral, there's this visceral uh, verse in James. I don't know if you guys read James, but James kind of paints a picture for us about the power of the tongue. He says, likewise, this is chapter three, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a single spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the body parts. How do you really feel about this, James? It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and it itself is set on fire by hell. That word hell is actually the word Gehenna in the Greek. If you were reading the Greek, it would say Gehenna, it wouldn't say hell. I think Gehenna is actually a better translation than the word hell. Not because the translator that translated the NIV didn't do a great job. That's what Jesus is communicating. But Gehenna was a real place. Gehenna, like, so if you, if you read the word Jerusalem in the Bible, you don't read the word city of peace, even though that's what the word Jerusalem means. If you were to look up the word Bethel in the Bible, the Bible says Bethel. It doesn't say house of God. Or Gal, uh, Gilgal is another location. It doesn't say circle. It says Gilgal, because that's what those words mean. But we're talking about real places. And when James, or I'm sorry, when Jesus was talking about Gehenna, who James is quoting right now, he was using a real place. 
that people would have known at that time. If you were a first century listener or reader of this letter, you would have known what Gehenna was. Gehenna was a place with a brutal history. Gehenna was a place where a couple hundred years before this letter was written, children, babies were sacrificed to false gods. A couple hundred years after that, when there were wars or battles around that area, Gehenna is where they brought the bodies to burn them. And so over the centuries, Gehenna had become a dump. It was basically the city dump. It's where people bought their refuge. They set it on fire to get rid of it. And it had this stench. It filled the air. You could actually smell destruction. It smelled like death there. It was a real place. And so when he says, your tongue has the power to create Gehenna. It was the power to set your life, your relationships, your work, your families, your communities on fire. He goes on, all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. The tongue, with the tongue we praise the Lord our Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth comes praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can fresh water and salt water come out of the same spring? And there's this urgency. James wants us to understand that our words have catastrophic potential. I know Brian, Brian started out heavy today. <laughs> Going straight for, the, straight for the jugular. And it's so interesting because we live in a culture. We live in a culture that doesn't treat words like this, do we? We live in a culture that treats words as cheap as meaningless, as vapid things. I can just send words out into the Twitter sphere and it doesn't matter if they're true or not. It doesn't matter if I'm criticizing somebody, tearing down their character. I get to send that out and I get to wash my hands of it. And whatever happens, that's somebody else's business. That's how we treat language in our church. And when we get wounded in our relationships, we really slowly find our way deeper and deeper into a posture where we send fire towards our loved ones. You guys have all done this, right? Have you guys ever been in, um, in a tense moment with somebody and they say something really helpful, like, okay, calm down. And I, that was all laughter of the women. I could hear that. Or they, uh, they tell you that, okay, okay, I want to hear what you're saying, but um, first we have to stop overreacting. And instead of validating, oh, I can tell you're really upset. I actually send this subtle message to you that what you're experiencing isn't valid. And so when you're ready to see the world my way, I want you to bring your pain over to me. And without even knowing it, we actually stab, we jab, we, we, we send this burn towards our partner. Um, one, of my, one of my nicknames when I was growing up, I'm just gonna be vulnerable. One of my nicknames growing up was actually, because I really felt like it was my job to correct people. And so one of, my, one of the things my beautiful, amazing wife helped me exercise from my vocabulary was actually dot, dot, dot. And I, I'm not saying I don't use the word actually sometimes, but I don't say, actually, that's not how you say that word, or actually, that isn't a word. Being a lit major, I think it's my job to create, every, or to correct everybody's. One of my favorite things to hear, you can hear, have you guys ever been at a table where you're like, you're having, you're having dinner with another couple? This is where you really, it's when you're around other couples. And you hear the moment that the fight they're gonna have later tonight, you hear the moment that it starts, where you'll hear like Bob lean over. So Barbara doesn't treat her husband that way. You know, they'll do something. 
And it doesn't take much. We, we think, oh, I'm just, I'm just expressing my pain or I'm just expressing my frustration. But we're actually setting, it's this tiny little spark that has the, the potential to really ruin our joy, our relationship. You know, in the book of um, Ephesians, I think, Paul actually describes the three characteristics that the church should be defined out of. And two of them are emotional states. He says the church is defined by righteousness and peace and joy. And it's striking to me that two of the descriptors that he uses to describe what we should be like, how the world knows that we're a light, two of them are emotional states. What we have to realize is that our words have a lot of power and that for most of you, speaking is the most dangerous thing you do all day long. That's helpful. Wives, husbands, this is, I'm giving you a gift right now. Take this in. One of the, uh, <laughs> that's a wise man talking right there. It's helpful for me to look at where, where language began in our story. This isn't where God's story begins, but this is where our story with God begins. And I go back to Genesis all the time. So if you remember in the very beginning, chapter one, it says in the beginning, God was, there's heavens and the earth. And then there's these three powerful words. There's these three powerful words where it says, and God said, and God said is not the personality of God describing. When God says something, him saying it, the act of him saying it is actually a creative force. It's actually a generative power. When God says something, even if it isn't true before he says it, it comes to be reality after he says it. And the first thing he says is, and God said, let there be light. And light that didn't exist comes into existence. And if you jump down, so that's day one. If you jump down to day six in chapter two, in verse 26, we get to a really pivotal point and they have those three powerful words, some of the most powerful words in the Bible. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, so that he may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Isn't that interesting? Let us make man... So he's been creating for five days. He created separation between um, oceans and land. He created plant life. He created light. He created ocean and animals on the ground. And then he pauses and he says, okay, I'm gonna use this same generative force. I'm gonna speak again. And he says, okay, this next thing is different. This next thing I'm gonna create is, is not like everything else. This next thing is like me. This next thing, humans, I'm actually gonna give my DNA to. I'm gonna give them a power that reflects my power, an identity and a worth that reflects my identity and worth. And his voice is actually given to you. And our voice echoes the creative force of who God is. I remember when I was first wooing my lovely wife, Sarah. Sarah and I dated our sophomore year in high school. Uh, it's kind of helpful to understand that because of how absurd I'm about to describe myself as. But it's just, I just want you to know, like when we started dating, I was 15, she was 14, and it was like a category five high school drama. It was the whole thing. You've seen it in the movies. When we broke up, the whole school knew about it. It was that kind of drama. Well, we ended our relationship, I think, in, uh, towards the end of my junior year. And uh, then we, 
we both graduated high school and we both really, really, really wanted to know God. We knew that God was calling us to dive deep into our relationship. And then I heard that Sarah was going to another internship, this really big ministry in Texas. I said, I really wanna know God too. And she's there. So I went to Texas and I was really good. I was patient. The internship helped. We're not actually allowed to date in the internship. So that was helpful. And I kept my eye and we kind of rebuilt this friendship. When you come out of pain and drama, you need to give it a breather. And I waited about two and a half years, almost three years after we graduated high school. And I was living down in San Diego at the time. She was living up in Northern California. And I drove up and I sat her down. And at this point in my life, I was like, I've already dated you. I've dated other people. I'm kind of over that whole thing. I want to be with you. And I sat her down at Starbucks and like normal people, I said, I wanna be your boyfriend, which is not where normal, I'm saying that sarcastically. That's not where most people start. And so the next day, she was all about it. The next day we're driving from Northern California down to San Diego because she's gonna spend some time with friends. And we've been dating monogamously for about 24 hours. Also dating for about 24 hours, period. And we're driving down to San Diego and I did what all of you would have done. And I started to say, I'd like to talk about our future together. This is true. And I started to tell her like, you know, in the last couple of years, as I've been growing in God, God's been giving me this, this desire. I think God is calling me to build marriages, to be a part of building up marriages. And she's like, oh my gosh, I, that's been on my desire. That's been on my heart for the last couple of years too. And then in this moment of intimacy, it's really exciting to hear that. I said, okay, so, so God, because I've read a lot of books, guys. At this point, I know what I'm talking about. I've read all the Gary Smalley. I've read the, Jerry, the Gary Chapman. So I know what I'm talking about. I'm 19 years old. And I told her, God's given me this, this vision. He's given me this, uh, this dream that I'm never gonna have a fight with my wife. That's the bar. All the grumbling is married people right now. And she, have you ever like, have you ever been around a, a Southern person and they say, oh, bless their heart. You know what that means? What is that code for? Somebody say it. That's a sweet, but dumb, but sweet thing that you just said. And my wife kind of cocked her head to the side and she looked at me like, oh, bless your heart. And she said, I think you're gonna have a fight with your wife. That was the first time she said your wife, like she separated herself from it. She's like, I'm gonna hold this with an open hand. And I didn't realize it at the time. She didn't leave me. By the grace of God, she stuck around, even though I had some, some weird ideas. And now we're like one year married, and I'm realizing for the first time that I actually, that dream didn't come from a, a sense of shalom. It didn't come from a sense of peace. Like God had restored my identity. I'm like, I don't ever wanna have a, an elevated fight with my wife. I was saying, I don't ever wanna disagree. I just want us to live in a perpetual state of Zen all the time. And it wasn't until I was married and I found my anger, it, 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 it revealed itself. Marriage will do that. And I got into therapy and I started to realize, oh, I actually wasn't pursuing peace. I was running from anger. See, I grew up in a home where anger was not a healthy thing. Anger was nobody says anything and then World War II. I remember being in my living room, watching my parents escalate. And the thing that was bothering me is I knew that this Tuesday, E.T. was coming out on VHS. And I'm like, in the next 20 minutes, that VCR is gonna get broken. I can feel it. 
It's about to happen. And that was what anger looked like to me. And my dad had a really explosive temper. My mom's dad had a really, really violent temper. And so I can remember my mom turning to me in panic when anger would come out of me and treating it as so dangerous. And I internalized that. And so now I'm a young man and I am treating my anger as dangerous. And what happens when you treat something as dangerous? It becomes dangerous. Absolutely. And so the first time my wife started to see my anger in the second and third year of our marriage, it was explosive anger. It wasn't healthy anger. There's this really, really critical turning point in Adam and Eve's story in chapter three. So we just saw God create the heavens and the earth and the narrative, the narrative that he speaks. When God speaks, the words are love and light. When the serpent speaks, he inserts a new narrative. And so in chapter three, verse three, it says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you must not eat any fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden or you, you must not even touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die said the serpent to the woman, for the God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And this is really interesting. So the serpent just inserts this question. Notice he actually doesn't tell her to do anything. He doesn't instruct her to eat the fruit. He just questions God's trustworthiness. Is God really trying to protect you or is he trying to keep you from something good? because he wants to lord power over you. And just that narrative, just that story coming into Eve's mind, it says she saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye. She saw her world differently because a new narrative, a narrative of fear and doubt made its way into her mind. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and they ate it and the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked and they sewed fig trees together and made coverings for themselves. Right before this verse, the very last verse of chapter two, it says, and Adam and Eve were naked and they felt no shame. I don't know about you. I can't personally relate to that. I don't know if you've ever had the dream where you're like in school or in workplace and you're naked? Does anybody associate that dream with calm? Or is it the visceral panic that shoots through your body? I know this is a little atypical in Southern California. There's probably a higher percentage of people who be like, that totally, I'm good with it, let's do that. <laughs> That's atypical though. When I travel, it's, it's really reassuring to me when I travel and I realize like, okay, not everybody has a washboard stomach. Southern California is weird. It's also important to remember that's actually not the kind of nakedness that Genesis, that Moses is writing about in Genesis. See, we are concerned with the, exide, the outside. It's, the Bible tells us that God is concerned with the heart. The nakedness that the Bible is talking about is a nakedness of mind and heart. They never even knew what it was like to have a, a thought in their mind that they wanted to hide from each other. That never even occurred to them. And so the serpent, another, like, crafty thing about that is what he says to her is actually not entirely false. Part of what he's saying to Eve is true. He says, you're not going to die. That is true in a sense. 
or Eve eats the fruit and she does not instantly drop dead. What God was warning is that this innocence, this peace, this joy that you live in effortlessly because you don't know shame, because you trust who I am, that peace is gonna die if you don't trust my words. And the serpent inserts a new language in um, John 8, Jesus is actually talking to the religious leaders. It's like one of the most ninja mic drop moments in the gospels. Jesus is talking to the religious leaders and he says, you guys don't understand what I'm saying because you don't speak my language. You speak the language of Hasatan, the deceiver, we call him devil or Satan. His native language is lies. Is that the most epic literary thing you've ever heard in your life? The native language of the devil is lies. It's not only his native language, it's the primary tool that he uses to destroy you. Is he doesn't worry about, a lot of, a lot of times like, people will come in and like, oh, Brian, it was really frustrating. I, I was under attack. It's like, oh my gosh, what happened? We got a flat tire. Well, did the devil gave you a flat tire? That's, that's not, I don't actually see that ever happen in the Bible, but I can imagine the mild sense of victimhood that you feel right now having got a flat tire, that might be the devil, but the flat tire probably isn't the devil. The devil does not worry about your circumstances. The devil loves to use your circumstances to convince you of what he's convincing Eve of right here is that at the bottom, at the ground, when we get right down to it, you are alone. And he's gonna use that lie and he's gonna let you set your life on fire. He's just gonna insert the fear and the doubt. There's, a, there's a, a family member that I have that we've been talking about recently taking a trip together. And, uh, and it's just one of those moments, because I live, I live in a world of people who, I just, I feel so unbelievably fortunate to like be surrounded by people who trust God and believe for glory and believe for safety and believe for joy. And so every once in a while, when I get in close proximity to somebody who's living in a different narrative, you feel the discomfort of it. And recently we were talking about taking a trip with some family members and we were talking about getting an Airbnb and the family member said, um, we're asking everybody who's attending if they please take a COVID test the day before they leave. And it was just one of those moments. Do I think it's absolutely absurd to treat a virus that can be deadly, to treat it with caution? Of course not. Is COVID potentially dangerous? Absolutely, There's, no one's disputing that. But it's just one of those reminders where you bump in, you're like, oh, that's right. You read pages and pages of news about how dangerous the world is. You submit yourself to this narrative again and again and again that you don't, and I was actually, it was, it was pretty recently we were talking and we found out, uh, this was several months ago, but we were talking and he said, oh, we went to, I can't remember what it was, I think it was the zoo. It was the first outing we've done in almost two years. And I just remember like, oh my gosh, no wonder you're grumpy. I cannot even imagine not living my life for two years that what we choose to dwell on, the narrative, the story that we entertain in our hearts becomes our reality. So let me look at one more, one more verse in John chapter one. You guys have heard it before. It says, in the beginning was the word, which is really interesting. And the word was with God 
and the word was God. And you gotta, you almost like, it forces, like you have to stop and ask, why that metaphor? Why does God use that metaphor, the metaphor of a word, as the central hinging image for us to understand who Jesus is? Why would he describe himself as a word? And it's helpful for me, it's helpful to understand that the word, word, in the text, if you were reading the Greek, the word is logos. Everybody say logos. Logos is one of the most diverse words in the New Testament. It's a word that gets translated all different ways. If you look up logos on a lexicon, it's gonna show you um, like 17 or 18 different ways that it gets translated. So sometimes it gets translated as an utterance. Sometimes it gets translated as an argument. Sometimes it gets translated as a thought or an idea. When, when it's describing Jesus knew their thoughts, he was saying, what the, the text actually says, Jesus knew their logos. And so when it says, in the beginning was the logos, it was God's mind, God's word, God's belief. And what we know, it was God's version of reality. And that reality was with God, that mind, that word, that truth was with God, and it is itself God. And then it goes down to chapter or I'm sorry, verse 14, and it says, and the word became flesh, and that flesh made his home with us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one who actually embodies the mind and heart of God, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And it's so interesting, because when I read this, the first thing I think of as a trauma therapist is one of the things you run in really quickly when, when people come in and you're processing a lot of different trauma is you realize, man, the circumstances in a person's life is actually not what dis- determines whether or not that experience that they go through becomes trauma. People go through all kinds of experiences. Some of them will go through the exact same experience. And for one person, it'll get stored in their mind in trauma, which is what we describe as this uh, irrational, pervasive feeling that the past is haunting me. I feel either the fear or the anger of the past now. And for the next person, it'll be something that they leave behind. The past doesn't feel intrusive and present. You think, why is that? Because the meaning, or I'm sorry, trauma is not defined by the event, it is defined by the meaning that we ascribe to the event. Does that make sense? And when we, were, when we read this word, the word became flesh, it is both a promise that we actually get a glimpse of the mind of God when we look and read about Jesus, and it's also a warning so that you know whatever logos, whatever word you allow to take up root in your heart, it is going to become flesh. It is going to be embodied. It is going to become your reality because Trauma, pain, anger, those things are not defined by circumstances. They are defined by the meaning that we give them. If I show up, like Pastor Mike was talking about this morning, if I show up and I hear the pastor talking about tithe, and the thing I hear is, you want my money. I just wrote a whole story that buffers me from the experience of God's provision. What, it buffers me from the safety that I can experience by trusting God with my finances and seeing what does he do when I believe that he's got my good 
in his mind. I write this story that buffers me from that. And it actually, instead of, instead of eliciting, instead of activating hope, oh my gosh, this is an opportunity. Even though it's really hard for me to trust God, all I have to do is take this one step, this concrete, this tangible step, I'm gonna tithe. And God is saying, test me because I want you to have an experience, not head knowledge, an experience of my love in your life. Instead of hearing that invitation and, and activating hope, we activate anger. Why? Because, oh, you're just trying to exploit me. And we have a, a false experience in that moment. There's this, uh, there's this reality because we don't think of words that way. We think of words as meaningless. We don't think how words actually become flesh. And so I wanna show you this video. Do you guys have that? If you don't, I can, I can describe it. Oh, that's amazing. So what you're looking at is a neurosynaptic cell, is a cluster of neurosynaptic cells. And so all, all you're looking at is basically, if I was to reduce that down, you're looking at a thought you're looking at a thought in a person's brain. That a thought, when I, when I hear Pastor Mike talk about tithing, whether I go to, oh, you just want my money, that's one thought. That is a formation based on my experiences. My brain is interpreting this as exploitation. Or I am looking at a thought in my brain that says, yes, God. I wanna experience your love. I wanna trust you. I wanna know what it's like to be your son. I wanna know what it's like to feel safe in the universe when the whole world is burning down around me. I wanna know what it's like to have peace in that place. And what we're looking at is the changing of a neurosynaptic cell. So this little dance that you see right over here on the left or on the right, that's actually a person rerouting their thought. So they're listening to Pastor Mike talk about tithing and he reframes it. He says it's a test, but it's not God testing you. It's actually God inviting you to test him. And I hear that and I take it in and I really let that word sit in my heart. And then maybe I take it even deeper and I actually write the check. I actually take the step and I trust God with my finances and I experience God provide. What you're watching is the neurons actually rewire themselves so that my automatic thought when it comes to finances is God's got my back. My automatic thought when it comes to God is God is fighting for me. He is for my good. He loves me. And what are we actually looking at? We're looking at a word, a logos, literally becoming flesh. What I think we're reading when we read that passage from James where it talks about Gehenna, I think we're reading James almost pleading with us. It's like almost like an urgency. Please understand that the world you live in is defined by three things. It's defined by the people you spend time with, by the media you consume, and by the logos, the words that you allow to dwell in your heart and you take action on. That that word that you give power to, you are going to live in your body as if it's true, and that word will become flesh for the life or for your death. And so let's take us back to like really, really concrete. What does that mean as a married person? If I'm, I'm stuck and I feel so polarized, man. Every single time my wife's tone of voice isn't cheerful, I automatically go into a defensive posture. Every single time they ask me a question, I automatically go on the defensive and, I, I, and there's this temptation to shut down because every single time we've, we've gotten into tense conflict maybe, and that's never true, but that's the narrative every single time. So many times that we've gone into tense conflict, I walk away feeling unseen, feeling accused, feeling like nothing I can do or say is gonna be good enough in your eyes. And so that word takes on flesh in my heart 
And then, out of that defensiveness, I respond to you in a way that confirms your fear. That when, when you say something harsh or you ask me a question and I respond in anger, maybe that harshness came from the fear that, oh my gosh, sometimes I just, I'm afraid that I, I don't even matter to my husband. It's been so long since I really felt seen and cherished. And so instead of saying like, I heard they went out on a date the other night, man, that'd be nice because I'm feeling really alone. And now my husband hears another confirmation, another accusation that I don't love you well. Instead of hearing that, I say, man, what am I, what is this actually coming from? It's actually coming from a fear, a word, a logos that I've allowed into my heart that's allowing me to believe that I don't matter to the person that I, one time I really believed I mattered to them. An invitation like this is not just a warning, it's an intense invitation of hope that all I have to do is start to intake and entertain a new word. That if I can ask, well, man, what does it look like to obey Proverbs and say that a kind word, or in, in another translation, a word of tenderness in response to anger quenches fire? What does it sound like for me to actually stand back? And the advice I give everybody is when it comes to intimate relationships, put your oxygen mask on first. What does that mean? That means if we're both triggered, if we're both living out of a word of fear in that moment, what I wanna do is I wanna make sure that I have a source other than you because the reassurance I want from you might not be online right now. You might be armored up. You might be really hurt and really angry. And the only thing I get access to from you in that moment is your armor. It's your self-protection. So I wanna know, okay, the first thing I wanna do is I wanna say, okay, I can tell that I feel really defensive right now. Can I have a minute? And I'm gonna go connect with God and I'm gonna let God renew the fear in my heart and remind myself that I actually don't need you to be happy all the time for me to be okay. I can actually tolerate you being angry with me. I can tolerate that because I know that my worth does not hang on your approval. It doesn't hang on your mood or your good day or your bad day. And I go there and I go into God's word and I root myself, I am okay, I am loved. God has got my back, I am protected. And then I go back to you and the next step, if I really wanna transform that word, is I'm gonna look at you, not from the place of my armor. I'm not gonna look at you through that helmet. I'm gonna look at you through the eyes of God. I'm gonna say, hey, sweetheart, what's going on? This isn't like you. You seem really frustrated. Tell me what's happening. Are you hurting? Did I hurt your feelings? And our body, the flesh, the word that we just invited into our body, our nervous system actually communicates to our partner way above the words that you say that they are safe. And the cycle of destruction becomes a cycle of connection if, if we can reroute the word, if we can go back to the source of life and invite God's truth into that moment of pain. Does that make sense? So let me just... Because I know there's a lot, there's a lot of stories in this room right now. And in a group this size, I know that there are some people that probably feel like they're right on the edge. There are some people that probably feel like my marriage is about to end, or I'm, I'm terrified of my financial situation, or I feel I'm sitting in a room full of people and I feel so, so, so alone. That the invitation in a moment like this is not to have a new understanding because new understanding doesn't change anything. 
There's a, there's a really slippery trap that happens in therapists that makes the therapist feel so good is that we'll ask, like, we'll ask a really great question or we'll reflect like a thought back to the person and we'll see the client go, oh, wow. And they have this insight moment and it's like crack cocaine to the therapist because all of a sudden we feel like, oh, I just earned my pay. I just, like, I just gave them some really great experience. And it's so important to remember that in that moment, all that's happened is a door got unlocked, but the person hasn't stepped through it yet. We do not live out of our cognitive understanding. We live out of our lived experience. And so when you hear tithe, does that elicit fear or does it elicit safety? If it elicits fear, then you take Pastor Mike's word and you say, okay, there's an invitation here to have a new experience with God. And when you guys, there's this powerful moment that Awaken starts all their services and Pastor Katie got up with the Book of Miracles and she invited you guys to say, okay, if you've got a need, if you need prayer right now, raise up your hand. Just the act of raising your hand. The Holy Spirit hasn't even been prayed over your life yet. The other people, just the act of raising my hand, my neurons are rewiring because I'm responding to the invitation. I'm putting my trust in a new source. And so if you are sitting on the edge today, man, please hear this, is that bring the pain, bring the fear to somebody else who can bring you into the Holy Spirit. And don't don't just sit there and have like, oh man, that guy said something really good. Go share, go down for prayer, share it with your connect group, process it until you have a lived experience where somebody else's eyes look back into your eyes and you see the love of God and you actually experience, I am not alone. Because the idea that I'm not alone, it doesn't change anything. And if, if you're not quite there, if you're, if you're maybe like, oh man, I, we do get stuck and I do get really defensive or I do get really critical of my partner. And maybe, maybe transformation is as simple as you saying, I'm actually not gonna turn to you and hold you to a standard I don't hold myself anymore. The next time you cause pain in my heart, I'm gonna ask the most vulnerable question I can ask. And I said, what is the word that I'm entertaining right now? What is the fear about our relationship, about me and your heart, about you, that's allowing me to armor up and treat you with anger? I'm gonna, I'm gonna deal with that. And, and I'm gonna say, you know what, sweetie? I wanna understand what's going on because this doesn't feel like you. And I'm gonna open up a whole new conversation, amen? Let me pray for you guys. Lord, I thank you so much that the same power that you spoke creation into existence, you have given in our voices to create heaven and hell in our own lives right here and right now, Lord. And I pray over every heart, I pray that you would wake up the lies that we are entertaining that are keeping us stuck, that are keeping us defensive, that are keeping us polarized and alone that we are living out of, Lord, I pray that you wake us up, open our eyes and give us the courage to entertain a new word, to bring that fear and that lie to another person and invite your Holy Spirit to give us an experience of that we can trust you. God, we thank you that you are for us. We thank you that you never let us down when we put our trust in you. We pray these things in your, your name, Jesus. Wow, what an amazing word. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Hey, listen, for more information about our church, go to www.awakenchurch.com. 
or subscribe to our YouTube channel if you haven't already and download our app. It is amazing. It is chock full of incredible messages, information about upcoming events, and you can even support our ministry if you feel so inclined. We loved having you with us today. We look forward to seeing you again. God bless you. Live a life that is transformative. Bye for now.